Hey, what's up? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Hope you're enjoying your long weekend if you have the day off, uh, whatever you're up to today. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for making us a part of your day. I'm Jamie Dodd. No Drancer today. More on that in a second. Uh, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can get any of your thoughts, questions, whatever's on your mind about the Canucks. Uh, about things happening around the league, hit me up, 650-650, and I'll get to it throughout the course of the show today. As mentioned, no Drance today. Uh, The guy put in a shift, right? Four games, because he didn't just do the Canucks games. He went and watched Hunter Brustevich in uh, in Kitchener on Friday as well. Four games and four nights. Producer Dom's not impressed. Uh, Some travel complications on the way back from putting in a shift out east uh, have prevented Drance from joining the show today. But uh, he'll be back tomorrow when I will be absent. I'm on on the morning show of Halford for a few days starting tomorrow. So uh, Drance and I, I don't think we'll be doing a show together until Friday. But uh, Drance are back tomorrow, not in today. It is just me today, and the first text comes in. First text of the show, how about them Canucks? Yeah, another good. Look, I know they didn't get the win against the Leafs, and I know that's one of the most hyped games on the schedule, and especially with the Quinn Hughes versus the Eastern media storyline. That was a big one that everyone had circled, but you take a step back. Yeah, you would have loved to get that one. I understand. You take a step back. They get the split on the weekend. They take four out of six points on the Eastern Canadian swing. No matter how you slice it, that's a successful trip. I realize the Canucks have set an extraordinarily high standard for points percentage so far this year. So, hey, only taking two-thirds of their points is not not up to those standards. But, yeah, taking four to six points on the road, doesn't matter who the opponents are, doesn't matter if they're all playing back-to-backs, anything like that. That is a successful road trip no matter how you swing it. Now, lots to get into today. I mean, the Oilers making news over the weekend, which we can touch on. Uh, you know, lots to get into with the Canucks. Big trade request from a name in Calgary, Nikita Zadorov, who we've heard linked with the Canucks. It is a day off for the Canucks today. They did make one roster move, Jack Stanika going on waivers to be reassigned to Abbotsford. Now that suggests, obviously, with Carson Soucy leaving the game against Montreal due to injury, that suggests uh, that there might be a defenseman coming up from Abbotsford just in case. And I don't think this tells us anything about the severity of Susie's injury or how long he's likely to be out, but the Canucks going ahead and probably bringing up some cover uh, for Carson Susie should he not be able to go on Wednesday when they play next. I would expect it to be Christian Willannon, left shot guy, one of the uh, team leaders for the Abitur Canucks in terms of points with, uh, I believe, in 13 games. So I would expect it to be Christian Willannon, uh, but we'll see. We'll see when the corresponding move happens after Jack Studnika goes down. It'll be a good test. One way or another, it'll be a good test of the depth on the blue line if Susie can't go on Wednesday. All right, so looking at this Eastern Canadian road trip for the Vancouver Canucks, and Drancer and I set this up last week, right, with, hey, the team has been 
really, really good overall this year, but they've been especially lights out at home, and so now they go out for just a three-game road trip, but still a chance to see what they can do on the road. And I would say, you know, the two-thirds of the points, you're picking up four out of six points, that means you passed. I I don't think any of those games are necessarily going on the uh, the the season highlight reel for the Vancouver Canucks, but hey, you found a way to win two of them, the other one doesn't go your way, that's fine. You can absolutely live with it. What did we learn overall about the Canucks on this trip? And I want your answers as well. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can hit me up. What did you learn about the Canucks on this road trip? And I'll start with that performance in Montreal yesterday. Now, look, they had lost one game going into this. So it's not as if they were in a tailspin. And the great thing about the position the Canucks are in so far this season is that you can lose a game and you don't have to sweat it too much. It's not panic just because you've lost a game because you've done such a good job putting yourself in a, in a strong position in the standings, racking up points already. So I don't want to overstate the position they were in going into that game on Sunday. But still, what's one thing that really good teams do in the NHL? They don't let one loss become more than one loss, right? They make it just a little road bump that you immediately recover from. And I think that's especially important for the Canucks right now. We can go through a lot of the numbers about how they're situated for the playoffs. But obviously they're in an extremely, extremely strong position to make the playoffs with the record that they've amassed to this point. The only thing that can sink this team's playoff chances at this point is a massive extended spiral, right? Even scuffling for a little bit, scuffling for a month, is not going to hurt your chances. The only thing that's really going to sink this team is if they go in the tank for an extended period of time. And just the fact that they came out having lost the night before, wrapping up a road trip, and yeah, Montreal, not the strongest opponent. They're on the second half of back-to-back too. I understand that. But the fact that they came out and were able to not even let a game turn into two games, not even let it turn into the possibility of a losing streak or a skid. And they turned in, you know, Rick Tockett spoke about it after the game. He thought it was a really impressive game, professional road performance. They knew the type of game they had to go out there and have to make sure that one loss stayed as one loss. Go out, get those two points, get back home, and give your chance to sell, uh, uh, give your, yourself a chance to reset. That's what they did. And if you're capable of consistently bouncing back after losses, and it's not, I didn't think they played terribly against Toronto. Definitely not one of their best games, but it wasn't like it was a disaster. We are like, oh my gosh, we, we have to refind our game. It wasn't the Philly game all over again. But still, they didn't have their best game. You know, they didn't have their best game in the win against uh, Ottawa either, frankly. They were able to reset. They were able to do enough, play that professional road-style, mature game, and go out and get the two points. And if that's a characteristic of your team, if that's a consistent trait of your team, right? Being able to quickly reset when you're a little bit off your game. And we've seen it a couple of times now. We saw it after the performance in Philly. I didn't love the Tampa follow-up, but after that, they get back to their game in a hurry. It doesn't take them two weeks to refine their footing. It might take them a couple of games. If that's a characteristic of this team, it's going to be overwhelmingly likely that they make the playoffs. It already is overwhelmingly likely, but they are going to avoid that spiral, which could put a dent in their playoff hopes, if that is real. And I thought that's something we saw 
And you certainly hear the team talk. You hear the coach talk about how they're preparing. The coach praised them for how they performed. It seems like that is something they're going to be able to avoid. So I think that's one thing that we learned or at least gathered more evidence about for the Canucks on this road trip. The ability to have those bounce-back performances uh, after a bad result, after a result you're not thrilled with, after maybe a couple of games where your process isn't quite right. Uh, Teresa Nanaimo, this is a good one. This was one that was on my list as well. Teresa Nanaimo says, I learned that Casey DeSmith is a damn good goalie. And even more than it being about DeSmith in particular, I think when you look at how they used their goalies on this trip, the fact that they gave DeSmith two out of three starts, the fact that DeSmith gets both of their wins, and I'm not putting the loss on Saturday against Thatcher Demko, those sorts of nights happen to even the best goalies in the league. But I think what we've learned is that the Canucks can feel very, very confident in their backup. That's the way I would phrase it, right? And DeSmith has earned them that confidence. I think part of it's how they're playing in front of DeSmith as well. But DeSmith has been huge for them, and now they're in a position where they can be very, very confident in their backup. And that has so many important ramifications, right? Not just about keeping Thatcher Demko fresh. Well, that's an important one. But the fact that you have the freedom to, hey, you know, maybe Thatcher Demko just needs a moment to reset. Maybe he needs that extra day off to reset and get in some work with Ian Clark. You can go to Casey DeSmith and have absolute confidence that you're going to have at least a chance to get those two points that night. That's a huge one. And again, I think it's a good shout from Teresa Nanaimo texting in. DeSmith was great. He was really, really good in both games, and he is doing exactly what you want from a backup goalie right now, which is giving you all the confidence in the world. for If, if we need to rest Thatcher Demko for whatever reason, if it's purely rest, if it's to give him a chance to reset, whatever it is, we don't have to stress about it. And I think Rick Tockett deserves a lot of credit for putting DeSmith in a position to earn that confidence, for giving him a significant number of starts in the early going of the season, despite the fact that Thatcher Demko has played really, really well. I think that's a credit to Rick Tockett, and Casey DeSmith has rewarded him. And let's not forget as well, I mean, Casey DeSmith, he was a late add to this roster, obviously coming over in the Tanner Pearson trade. And I think it was fair to come in going into the season before they added Casey DeSmith to wonder what the backup goalie situation would be like for the Vancouver Canucks. So credit to the front office as well for recognizing, you know what, this is a place where we need a little bit of help. We're going to go out and get Casey DeSmith. And like so many things that the coach has done and that the front office have done and the players have done so far this year, like so many things, it turns out, uh, or at least early in the season, to have been a home run acquisition so far. Here's another one that comes in. This one's from Muskoka Mike. We're talking about what did we learn about the Vancouver Canucks from this three-game Eastern Canadian road trip. Uh, Muskoka Mike says, we learned something's off with Petey. And that's a fascinating text because I think a lot of people probably agree with Muskoka Mike. I agree with Muskoka Mike. I don't think we saw the best of Elias Pettersson over this three-game road trip. It's just wild to have this conversation. I find it really difficult to wrap my head around it when we wake up this morning and he's still leading the league in points. He has 25 points in 15 games this year. And yet I think there's also a completely fair and valid conversation to be had about 
well, is he getting or are you seeing the best of Elias Pettersson on a nightly basis? And not only is he leading the league in points, the team is off to a fantastic start. And yet as Muskoka Mike texts in, you know, you, you look at what's happening, you look what he's doing on the ice, and I think it's fair to say, you know what, this isn't necessarily the same dominant ice-tilting Elias Pettersson, because that's really what it comes down to. He's putting up the points, but are you seeing the shift-to-shift impact that we saw at his most dominant from Elias Pettersson last year? I think that's what Muskoka Mike is getting at, and I think that's a fair question. Okay, what, what exactly is Elias Pettersson's status? Now, the good thing is, one, he's still leading the league in scoring. He's still extraordinarily productive. Even PD at whatever percent this is, because I don't think it's 100%, is still an incredibly effective player. The other good part of it is, Okay, maybe Pedersen hasn't been quite at his best, but the team is still rolling, and that says a lot about the Canucks and the work they've put in and the coaching staff, the fact that they haven't needed him to be at his very, very best. But I do think... I do think that it's something worth monitoring at the very least. It's something worth paying attention to and seeing, okay, where is his game right now? It's a good shout by Muskoka Mike. What exactly is Elias Pettersson's status? How close to 100% is he? And, I mean, how scary is it that we're talking about the league leader in points, maybe not quite being at 100%? This text comes in. We learned that talk at hockey isn't nearly as boring as you said it would be. You need to admit that you were wrong about that. I was also 100% wrong, but I'd rather listen to you admit you were wrong. I don't know if I was the one leading the charge about the low event talk at hockey. We got a lot of texts in about that in the preseason. Concern about whether Rick Tockett would Rick Tockett's style of hockey would be too defensive, too boring. But here's the thing. My my response to that was always, yeah, maybe it will be low event. But if the team is winning, it's not going to matter. If the team is winning, it doesn't matter what style of te- of hockey they're playing. Fans will get on board. Now, It just so happened that they've also been able to fill the net at an extraordinary rate. Part of that is the power play, right? Part of that is the finishing. We don't need to get into the shooting percentage PDO discussion right now, but we all know the score there. But yeah, I think in general, it has not been park the bus, neutral zone trap style hockey. I think that's uh, been a welcome. The fact that they've been able to thread the needle of playing with a little bit of pace, playing fast, but also being solid defensively, right? being a little bit entertaining while also getting those results. I think that's been really, really good to see. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Uh, What did you learn about the Vancouver Canucks on this three-game Eastern road trip? Through Ottawa, win, loss in Toronto, uh, win in Montreal. And one that I wanted to highlight, and this actually kind of ties into uh, Muskoka Mike's point about Elias Pettersson, maybe not quite being at 100%, because one thing that I learned is that the bottom six is clicking in a big way right now for this team. And you think about what a, not that there's no been no good bottom six performances over the last couple of years for the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, even under Rick Tockett, Connor Garland played really well after Rick Tockett came in last year, right? You go back to the the Mott-Lamico-Highmore line, which was legitimately really, really strong for a stretch there under Bruce Boudreaux, but we also know that this has been a very, very top-heavy roster construction for a while, right? With Elias Pettersson and JT Miller and once upon a time Bo Horvat and then Andre Kuzmenko at the top, and as you go down farther down the lineup, a lot of question marks about what you're going to get. And our Rick Tockett spoke 
uh, at some length about Connor Garland and the game he had against Montreal. And it wasn't just that game against Montreal, right? Connor Garland, despite the fact that he hadn't been getting points, hadn't scored since the first goal of the season until Montreal, Connor Garland had been playing really well. He had been doing a lot of things well, winning those battles, getting those scoring chances, and just hadn't been rewarded for it. He got rewarded for it yesterday. And as Talk had said, even if you look beyond Connor Garland, the Garland, Pugh Suter, Dakota Joshua line, they were really good against Montreal. They were really good against Toronto too. They've been one of this team's bright spots over the last four or five games. And then you look, Teddy Bluger makes his debut, Niels Hoaglander comes out, but Bluger, I thought, looked sharp, and I think there's no question that he's capable of really contributing in a fourth-line role for a team, for a good team, for a playoff team like the Canucks are you know, looking like they're going to be. Sam Lafferty has obviously been excellent since joining the Canucks, and especially in that fourth-line role. I really like Niels Hoaglander's game on that fourth line, even though he comes out. Even Anthony Beauvillier, and we can get to Beauvillier as a, a trade possibility and all that, but, you know, Anthony Beauvillier is a player. Like, he's a guy that you can have on your third line, so the fact that he slots down to the fourth line, that says a lot about where the depth is for this team right now. And again, to bring it back to Muskoka Mike's point, okay, maybe Elias Pettersson is not firing on all cylinders at five-on-five, five, but I think one of the te- one of the things that's setting this team apart from past editions of the Canucks is that there are legitimate bottom six groups, two really right now, especially that third line, that have an identity and know how they can help the team. And that you can count on them driving the team to victory for certain stretches. They're not going to do it for the whole season. But Connor Garland in that third line role. We saw it last year under talk. It took a little bit to get going this season. But we know he can be productive. And I think it's a really good fit right now with him, Suter, and Joshua. And that was a big takeaway for me is that even when the Canucks stars, look, they've still been phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. But the fact that it was the third line taking a couple of opportunities to step up and be key players for this team, that speaks really, really well. Uh, Speaks really, really well about uh, what we could see for the remainder of the season from the Vancouver Canucks. Now, I still think that there might be a uh, a trade or at least, you know, a trade worth exploring moving from the wings to possibly add some on the blue line. But right now, Connor Garland uh, is, is playing really well and that bottom six in general is playing really, really well. Some of your responses coming in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. This one we learned they don't buy cheap skates like Montreal does. Yeah, that was bizarre. <laughs> that was a weird one. First of all, one of the most consistently funny sights in hockey is a guy trying to get off the ice with without one of his skate blades. We got to see it a couple of times in Montreal. Never a good look. Never a good look for your team when it's happening multiple times. Multiple times in a game like it did to the Montreal Canadiens last night. Uh, This one comes in. I learned that the second line is the nucleus of this team. I mean, the second line, if you look from game one through last night, has been the most consistently productive, positive forward line. There's no question about that. In fact, I actually don't think it's necessarily fair to call it the second line at this point. If you look at how they take line rushes, how they line up in practice, really, it's first line. They're playing those first line minutes. 
So I think we actually almost need to retire the idea that it's the second line. It is Rick Tockett's top line. Of course, this is the Miller, uh, Phil, Phil DiGiuseppe, Brock Besser unit. But yeah, it's not just Miller and what he's been able to do at center as a two-way player, as a playmaker. That's been extremely impressive. We all know about Brock Besser. And then Phil DiGiuseppe coming in and stepping up like he has, showing the offensive upside that he has. That's huge, right? The fact that you've got a line playing like a legitimate first line with really three players who are question marks for various degrees coming into the season. With JT Miller, it was, can he hold it down at center for a whole season? With Brock Besser, it was, what's the bounce back going to look like? And with Phil DiGiuseppe, it was, can he be a full-time top sixer? Like, those were three legitimate questions for all those players. They're all answering them right now, and they've turned into the top line for this team. And, yeah, they have been the most consistent and the most important forward group for this team so far. This text comes in. I learned that the Canucks' offensive creation depends a lot on point shots, shot passes, deflections, and screens. I wonder whether that can sustainably create offense over the entire season, or whether they're going to have to start creating more dangerous chances from the slot to keep the goals Coming, and that's an interesting one. And again, I don't want to restart the uh, the sustainability debate or the PDO debate or the shooting percentage debate or anything like that. But it's also, and by the way, that one's from James from Montreal. It's also no secret that you know if you want to score goals consistently as an NHL team, you've got to get to those high danger areas. And I I can buy in a little bit to hey, Brock Besser's gotten really good at screening the goalie. They have some guys who are really good at setting up those tips and deflections. I can buy all of that. It doesn't mean you're going to be the highest scoring team in hockey consistently if that's the biggest part of your offense. And I think that a lot of this comes back to the Elias Pettersson conversation as well, right? If Elias Pettersson is as dominant at five on five as we've seen him be in the past, then I think the Canucks are getting to those high dangerous high danger areas a lot more consistently. And we're probably not having this conversation, right? We're probably not worried about, ooh, can they get to those areas? I also start to think that, you know, the third line clicking the way it is right now, one of the things Connor Garland is really good at is getting the puck into those dangerous areas. I mean, we saw it on the, the Dakota Joshua goal last night, right? That's Connor Garland putting in the work to create a really dangerous chance for Dakota Joshua off rebound because he has that nose for the net. He likes to go to those areas. So I think there's some obvious ways you can look at the Canucks shot profile and see, okay, now that these things are happening, maybe it'll get better. But yeah, I also think it's totally fair, totally fair to say, you know what? I would still like to see them consistently create more of those high danger scoring chances. I don't think that's an unfair conversation or thought to have whatsoever. Um, This one says, what I learned is to your point, Jamie, the obsession with fans numbering lines one, two, three, and four is really out of touch with the reality of how the various forwards are positively impacting the outcomes. Look, I get it. I get why fans want to do it. It's just an easy shorthand. It makes it way easier to talk about the lines, right? Hey, first line, second line, third line, fourth line. One of the things that's interesting this year about the Canucks is if you look at how the ice time, especially at five on five, is divvied up, there's some surprising names towards the bottom of the five on five ice time list for forwards and some surprising names towards the top as well. I think Brock Besser is averaging the most five-on-five minutes of any Canucks forward at the bottom. I believe it's Andre Kuzmenko, and Drance and I have talked a little bit about this, about how you know Kuzmenko and Bovillier kind of flipping spots at certain points, both playing similar five-on-five minutes. 
it is interesting. Like Rick Talkett has done a really good job of managing those minutes. It's not as clear cut as first line through fourth line. Uh, he's looking for those opportunities to get get everyone their minutes and make sure he's getting the right players out there uh, at the right opportunities. All right, lots of good texts coming in. Keep them coming. What did you learn about the Vancouver Canucks on this three-game Eastern Canadian road trip? Uh, we'll talk to somebody from out east. He covers the NHL for our sister station in Toronto, Fan 590. He is Justin Cuthbert. I want to get into him with the coaching change in Edmonton, uh, his impression of the Canucks. Lots else to get to from the weekend with Justin. That's coming up here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the show here. Canucks talk on a holiday Monday. I'm Jamie Dodd flying solo. Drancer, as I said in the first segment, travel complications have uh, prevented his return to the studio and to the show. So it's just me here today, uh, live from the Kintec studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver, online at DunbarLumber.com. The Canucks, of course, just wrapped up a swing through Eastern Canada with stops in Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal. And there's a lot going on in the NHL these days to chat about all of that and more uh, from the Fan 590 in Toronto. He is Justin Cuthbert. Justin, thanks for doing this. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. Not a problem. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. And, uh, you know, I'll get to some of Canucks stuff and and the Leafs with you as well. But I do want to start in Edmonton, really the big story in the NHL right now, and especially here in Canada. They make the decision uh, to release Jay Woodcroft. They bring in Chris Knobloch in his stead. And, you know, it's just surprising. You don't often see a coach who has that kind of record get fired at this point of the season. I know the record this year hasn't been great, but if you look at his career track record at Edmonton, it's really impressive. Was it fair to make Jay Woodcroft kind of the fall guy for this start in Edmonton? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's fair-ish because, you know, there's such high expectations, right? I mean, I don't think you could go continue into the direction that you were, and if you kept Jay Woodcroft, maybe you would. I mean, the timing's a little awkward because – it seemed like they hit rock bottom and sort of bounced off rock bottom and, and were okay the next time out against the Seattle Kraken, obviously. And then you get the announcement. But if something is broken and it felt like something was broken, whether it was, you know, just uh, the misguided uh, decision to change the defensive structure, uh, it seemed to sour in a way where they weren't necessarily going to recover. And there's a lot of time left in the season and they've had, spouts before where they've been just terrible and they've been able to rebound but I'm not sure they were going to be able to get out of it and I do think it presented an opportunity for Jeff Jackson who well welcome to the Jeff Jackson era because it seemed like you know he's putting his fingerprints on everything and he saw an opportunity to not just fix what was going on or try to fix what was going on but to actually go out and get one of the guys that he's wanted or coveted for a long time so I feel like that made the decision easier but I think something had to happen and we're in a league now where you really can't do anything but fire the coach 
Uh, it was interesting to see some of the, com- uh, the, the comments coming out of Edmonton uh, since then. But uh, ultimately, I do think everyone, whether or not they were on board uh, when the decision was made, I-, I think there's a trust in the guy that they went to here in Knobloch. And uh, I think they did it because they're worried about not just this season, but beyond as well. Yeah, it's tough because I think two things can be true, right? One is that I think Jay Woodcroft could be a really good NHL head coach and, and probably will be at his next stop but also that it was the only move they had to make, given where they are right now. And then, as you mentioned, hey, Jeff Jackson clearly putting his fingerprints on this organization now in a major way. I think we see that just not just with the, the Chris Knobloch hire, but also how the press conference with him and Ken Holland played out. Mm-hmm. And, and just looking at this now, the optics of you know Connor McDavid's, McDavid's former agent now really running the show, running the hockey operations department in Edmonton, his former junior coach coming in uh, as the NHL head coach now. I, like, I know Connor McDavid said, hey, it wasn't his call or anything. He wasn't pushing for it. We know there's a history of Jeff Jackson really liking Chris Knobloch, but does it, does it in some ways put even more pressure on Connor McDavid? Because at this point, I mean, I'm not sure what else they could do to cater to him as the, as the franchise superstar there in Edmonton. Yeah, I don't know about pressure, but I, I don't know. If it was me, it would be a little bit uncomfortable because, yes, everything is being catered to me. And I'm sure he was okay with the Jeff from multiple levels or multiple directions, okay with Jeff Jackson being elevated, if you want to call it that, I guess not really elevated, mm-hmm. moving into a different role. But these things are all connected, and it's so obvious that they're all connected. I was thinking today and preparing for our show later, like, what is the second priority, assuming priority one is winning for Jeff Jackson? Is it to placate McDavid? Is it to placate Dreisaitl? Because McDavid's already locked into a, a, a pretty certain future here. If you went the route of getting Jeff, Jeff Jackson uh, into this position, it, it's fascinating because it's kind of like all these expectations. You have to win now, but you're also transitioning into a different era and one that is sort of, like there's meddling and it's and it's different and it's not as uh or not as pure i guess as what you would expect from a hockey team that's just building without biases built in so they're entering a different and strange world i think and i just don't know other than winning is obviously number one that's why they made this move like what is the number two thing like what are they needing to have happen with jeff jackson taking this job what are his priorities and where, is it, where it's going to lead them? I think it's a fascinating story and something we're probably going to see more of. Yeah, it is really fascinating because to your point, it, if, if, if Connor McDavid isn't the one driving the bus on some of these discussions uh, decisions, as you say, it can actually make him kind of uncomfortable, right? Because the, the optics oh, yeah. are, oh, everything's being done to placate him. But if he's not the one making the request, that puts him in a bit of a difficult scenario. And, you know, you do have to think, like, as much as you, okay, hey, bring in people that Connor McDavid uh, is familiar with. Hopefully that'll convince him to stay. The number one thing that's going to convince him to stay is is winning, is winning a Stanley Cup, being in a position to win a Stanley Cup. So you better hope that these guys, yeah, as much as they're connected to Connor McDavid, you better hope they're the best options to help you do that. Otherwise, it's going to be kind of futile in the end. Yeah, you're definitely, you're, I mean, you're spot on with that. I mean, I do think, I mean, the, the moment Jeff Jackson got hired, I was like, oh, that's a wrap. Like, they've made this decision that he, <laughs> you kind of know what Connor McDavid wants, right? Um, but now I guess you have to have it work for, uh, you know, two and a half years. Mm. Like it's got to feel natural. It's got to feel right. and It's got a result, as you mentioned in winning. And, and I do have a lot of confidence that they're going to turn this around. I think I have a lot of confidence without really knowing him all that well, that Knobloch's going to do a pretty good job 
because he knows a lot of the players, and I think a simplified approach approach is the best thing for the Edmonton Oilers, uh, who are going to you know get back on the rails here, I think, and maybe define what else they may need from a an addition perspective to gear themselves up, hopefully for the playoffs. I think they're going to get things sorted out. But if it doesn't look any different in the playoffs, if they run into a Vegas team that's clearly way more geared to win in the postseason than they are, maybe things do sour because there's a lot of time left for it to sour. And I like Leon Dreisaitl's the first shoe to drop. And I know the friendship between Dreisaitl and McDavid is immensely strong, which when Jeff Jackson takes the job, you think pretty highly of Leon Dreisaitl coming back as well. But at some point, if it's like, hey, we're on to another coach and another coach mm. and another coach, and it never seems to work because we can't seem to sort it out without having, you know, uh, you know, having the, uh, the slaps on the wrist, like maybe he'll just decide, hey, this isn't right and everything goes haywire after that. I think the strongest thing to keep McDavid in Edmonton is Dreisaitl, not Jeff Jackson. And I think that works vice versa. But if one of them decides that, you know, enough is enough here because it just doesn't work on the ice, then maybe this, the best laid plans here uh, just go awry. So the team that uh, you cover most closely, the Leafs, they've won two in a row. One of those wins was against the Calgary Flames, and then almost immediately after that game, uh, word gets out about a Nikita Zadora, of course, pending UFA with Calgary trade request. And look, Brad Living was in Calgary. Now he's in Toronto. We've heard uh, the Leafs connected with Zadorov. I know it's been a bit of an up-and-down start, and there's been a lot of questions about the moves uh, Living has made so far in his tenure as the Leafs GM. Is there a sense of urgency to try to go out and make a trade to, to maybe go do a, a Nikita Zadorov ac- acquisition if they could? Well, a couple wins on the weekend, I think, kind of cooled everybody's yeah. jets uh, just a little bit, uh, including uh, you know a return from Jake McCabe. I won't say a return to form from John Klingberg, uh, but at least you know things were looking a little bit as they were supposed to uh, before uh, you know more problems compounded the existing issues that the Maple Leafs had. I mean, it's the same thing, though. I mean, winning will cure things. And I think, yeah, desperation can set in, and, and maybe they go out and get someone. They do need someone, though, eventually. It's just about maybe the price you pay. Maybe mm. you're paying more for Zadarov now uh, as opposed to later. But, I mean, I've always looked at Calgary as the natural trade partner with the Maple Leafs uh, for so many reasons. I mean, for living connections, I don't think uh, he left on bad terms with anyone other than maybe ownership or the people that were cutting his checks uh, before uh, he did leave, but I think he leaves very amicably, and I think those two could easily find uh, common ground uh, in terms of you know uh, potential trade partners, um, but also because they have a surplus of potential defensemen who could help this Maple Leafs team. The Maple Leafs are one defenseman, maybe two defensemen short. They have been since the start of the season. It was built into the year that they don't have to go out and get someone. Uh, I just think, uh, I don't know if I'm paying a premium right now to rush and get Zadarov when you haven't seen how all the chips are going to fall. And Noah Hannafin and Chris Tanev are other options with the same team that you might have some ease in, in dealing or negotiating at, at the very least with. So I don't know if I'm rushing to do that now because I think you have to full, pay the full price in order to get that done now. Uh, but if Zadorov's a guy who wants to be there and Trilliving has uh, a relationship with Conroy, uh, I, this may just come together pretty naturally, and I don't think Leaf fans would be uh, too disappointed in that. Well, and of course, one of the things with Zadorov that you know makes him attractive not just to the Leafs but to a lot of teams in the NHL is he has that that rare bite, physicality, meanness to his game. Definitely a throwback player 
in that regard. And, you know, I thought it was fascinating watching that Leafs game on Saturday against the Canucks. Ryan Reeves out of the lineup, and we, we all know about the struggles he's had to start the season, but the Leafs seeming to really – uh, out of their way to kind of have that pushback that maybe they've been lacking earlier this year to the point of taking a couple of instigator penalties against the Canucks, but they still come out on the right side. They still get the victory in the end. H- how much concern is there about the identity of this Leafs team? And, you know, how, how conscious do you think they are of trying to answer some of those concerns about the pushback and the physicality in their game? Oh, I think extremely conscious. Uh, I mean, I don't think you can ignore the fact that the game that Ryan Reeves wasn't involved in yeah. resulted in the actual pushback and two instigator penalties. But I thought Kevin Bieksa made a brilliant point on the panel on Hockey Night, uh, just, you know, saying, you know, just the way that they reacted caused those instigator penalties. And if it's more of a natural thing where it's not like, oh, my God, I have to react mm. right now, or the same thing is going to be said about us, uh, if you just have that patience to be like, to have a conversation about the hit before you fight or drop the gloves with the guy who laid the hit, maybe it results in, in not having that instigator. I, I mean, I think it's something that this team is forever going to be grappling with, or at least as long as this core four is around, because it's just not in their DNA and you can't change DNA. You can make additions, uh, but you can't actually change the DNA and their natural instincts are always going to be, uh, something different than what might be expected or what might be coveted with inside this fan base. It's just not a natural thing for them to get up for a brawl. Like, it's just not what they do. Uh, they can do it individually. Giordano and Max Domi showed you that they can, uh, but it's still not the most natural thing, and it's never going to be uniform across the roster despite bringing in the toughest guy in the league who might encourage people between uh, periods to be a little bit tougher or to just be uh, his jovial self. Like it's just not that simple changing the DNA of a team. And and I do think it's going to have to be pulled out of them, which I think it was just a little bit. Um, and I think it's always going to be a problem, even if it wasn't a problem on Saturday night. How much do you think it, it, it is something that legitimately holds them back from their aspirations, right? The fact that it doesn't necessarily come naturally to the best players on the team. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to quantify, um, but I, 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 you know, it's not the first time when Brad Marchand went to the bench after taking Timothy Lilligren out that, you know, John Tavares has stared blankly into space when, you know, other captains and other leaders uh, just wouldn't allow that to happen. I, I think, I don't, I don't want to put it all on John Tavares, but like, you know, you wear the C uh, and, it, you know, you're, you're looked upon for leadership, as are the other guys in the core four. And not everyone can be that way, but as long as those guys, don't have that response i mean that's what permeates the group and i do feel that it gets a lot tougher and everyone knows that it gets a lot tougher in the playoffs and that you do have to fight for each other i mean anyone who's played any type of sport if you play beer league hockey and there's a little dust up the vibes are a little bit higher in the room just because people have that energy injected into them and there's a little bit more to talk about and be about in terms of togetherness and this team for whatever reason doesn't have that piece and I don't know if it holds them back. I don't know if it's a reason why, but you can see teams that do or that don't have that problem build and, and sort of gain momentum in situations like that. That just doesn't happen for the Maple Leafs. In conversation with Justin Cuthbert from Fan 590 here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. So I think it's fair to say Toronto didn't get the best of the Canucks in that Saturday night game, but they have been one of the uh, really positive surprise stories around the NHL so far. You know, I don't want to just limit you to what you saw on Saturday, but uh, what are your thoughts on the Canucks and their hot start to the season so far here? 
Well, it's impressive, right? I mean, uh, you know, you see all the PDO Bender stuff. You see <laughs> the, you know, Thatcher Demko, the shooting percentage, all that stuff. I mean, I see great players uh, who have found something to unlock themselves, uh, maybe within each other, maybe not, maybe through their head coach. Um, but it has been very, very impressive watching them work this year. And, and I mean, my eyes go to Quinn Hughes. Uh, he's just an unbelievably special talent. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Hughes brothers, so I guess I naturally gravitate towards it. But uh, this is a team that always had parts, right? Uh, and I didn't know exactly what was missing. Maybe it was just bad contracts getting in the way of everything. And there, have been, there has been a push to rid the team of some of those things. But if you've got special players, which the Canucks have, and guys with utility playing within a pretty sound structure, which the Canucks have, it can result in pretty special things. And right now, yeah, it might be a little bit over their heads. Um, but, you know, if you get a hot start in the NHL, you can ride that wave for a very long time. So I think they're, I think they're a really good team. And, and they're led by a couple really motivated individuals who are, are thought of as, as some of the best players in the NHL. And that's a pretty good mix. There you go. Not uh, Quinn Hughes, not not tier 3B in uh, in your books. That'll that'll win you a lot of fans out here. It's been a very very hot topic go. out here on this coast uh so far this season, Justin. Uh hey, before I let you go, one of the other uh surprise teams, I think it's fair to say even though they're coming off uh, a historic regular season, but given the departures, the Boston Bruins are somehow doing it again with 24 points in 14 games. I look. I'll put my hand up here. I was expecting a massive drop off with the departure of Patrice Bergeron, just because he was so good, so crucial to everything they do. They're in the Leafs division. You're very familiar with the organization. Like, what is going on? How do they keep getting away with this in Boston? Yeah, I wanted to look at this a little bit more, but like the idea of continuity, I think is something that's undeniable, right? Like Patrice Bergeron, you mentioned, not there anymore. How many guys in that room has Patrice Bergeron impacted in some way? I would say yeah. 98% of them, uh, or at least pretty close to that. And, and I think that, that sort of thing uh, can last beyond even a player's absence. And I, I just think that this team still runs on the same fundamentals. The continuity from one season to the next, despite the loss of Bergeron, remains very high. And I, I, wanted to, I didn't get a chance to do it before uh, uh, chatting with you, but just looking at the teams that are in position to win divisions and the holdover and the continuity and, and the players who are there over and over and over again with systems that are in place or coaches that have changed, but at least some things you can fall back on, how much easier it is to win division titles when you don't have a experimental period, which I think a team like the Maple Leafs is having right now. I, I just think that's really key. And, and I do think we overstated the loss of Bergeron. He is a brilliant player. But even he was part system, uh, I'll, I'll put it that way, where, yeah, just being a Boston Bruin, playing around lots of really good players, helped him help everyone else. And I think that help is still permeating the group. I think we were too quick to, to write off the Bruins, and the fact that they could just continue doing this says a lot about their culture and a lot about their DNA, frankly. Justin, always appreciate the time, man. Thanks for doing this, and uh, we'll chat again soon. Sounds good. Have a good one. That is Justin Cuthbert from the Fan 590 in Toronto weighing in on uh, the Canucks, the Leafs, a lot of things happening around the NHL. And, yeah, somehow the Boston Bruins, for as good as the Canucks have been, uh, Bruins still rocking the highest points percentage in the NHL, have only dropped four points, 24 out of a possible 28 points to start the season. Although I should mention Canucks with a significantly better uh, goal differential. Of course, they have the highest goal differential in the league so far, doubling up their opponents. 
66 goals for, 33 goals against for the Canucks so far this season. Yeah, that point about continuity that Justin makes there about the Boston Bruins, that's a fascinating one because I don't think you'll hear a lot of dissent about the importance of continuity and the the value that it can provide. The problem is when you're a bad team and you value continuity – well, you're just staying continuously bad, right? It's really hard to improve that. And I think it's one of those, you know, eternal dilemmas that teams face. And I think we see this all the time with coaches in particular, right? You would love to have a long-term, really good coach with rock-solid job security, right? So, hey, if you're a, a rebuilding team, you want to give your coach a little bit of a leash, but... You also get into a situation like Edmonton just faced where sometimes you have to fire the coach and you know you're sacrificing continuity. You know you're not going to be able to build that job security and that culture and that tenure, but the the needs of the moment kind of force your hand. And I think one of the constant dilemmas that organizations face is when is this person worth sticking with through thick and thin and, and taking that gamble to build that continuity? And when do you just need to cut your losses and move on. It's one of those things that uh, I think it, it keeps good teams good, but it can also keep bad teams bad. Trying to strike that right balance can be really, really difficult. Ian texts in, how many wins? I'm just going to change it to points, but how many points will ensure a playoff berth for the Vancouver Canucks? So I, I always look at the bars, 94, 95 points, something like that. If you want to use a slightly different one, that's fine. But I think right in there is where I would – put the bar now the Canucks obviously with 23 points in 15 games so to get to 94 they need 71 points for the remainder of the season and they have 67 games left so that's just like a a hair a smidge above NHL 500 to get to 94 points on the season and I, you know, I'm committed to doing this playoff picture update on a regular basis here on the show because, look, we did it a lot from the other perspective over the last couple of seasons, driving home how enormous the mountain the Canucks had to climb once they dug themselves a hole was. And I think it's worth doing the flip side and worth really driving it home. What a strong position 23 points in 15 games puts you in. Again, 71 points in 67 games, 67 remaining games, which is just a hair above 500. That gets you to 94 points. That puts you in an extraordinarily strong position to make the playoffs. And again, I don't think anybody thinks, talk about PDO all you want, and yeah, it is going to regress. It is going to come back to earth. That shouldn't be controversial, but that doesn't mean the Canucks are going to be an 80-point true talent team all of a sudden. If they're a 95 or a 98 true talent team, all they need to do is play right around their talent level and they will cruise into the playoffs if they do that for the remainder of the season. That's the position that they've put themselves in. And honestly, I think it's actually, I think you can make the case that it's even stronger than just saying 71 points in 67 games. When you look at how things stand in the division and the conference as a whole. They're seven points up on Anaheim for fourth place in the Pacific. Like, they've already opened a gap on the fourth place team. So we're not even thinking about wild card at this point, right? You're thinking, okay, can you be top three in the Pacific? They've already opened up an appreciable gap over the fourth place team in the Pacific. You look at the Western Conference as a whole. They're eight points up on the Coyotes in ninth in the West. Ten points up on Seattle. Thirteen on Calgary. Still 16 points up on the Edmonton Oilers somehow. On November 13th, 
And yeah, one or two of those teams could get hot, could go on a really crazy run. You never know. And challenge the Canucks for a spot in the standings. But again, four teams would have to jump over them from where they are currently for the for the Canucks to miss the playoffs right now. And we're talking teams, yeah, Edmonton, Calgary, Seattle, Anaheim, Arizona, Nashville, St. Louis. Do any of those teams scare you? Again, one or two going on a run? Sure, I can see it. Four of those teams getting really hot and going on a run? I don't know. Not of those teams I just listed. I have a tough time seeing it. So to answer the question from the inbox, yeah, 71 points in 67 games get you to 94. And the way the conference is stacking up this year, I would bet on 94 points getting you in right now. You never know it could change, but I would bet on that being enough to book the Canucks spot in the playoffs. Uh, This one says, what is NHL 500? Is it just counting OTLs not as losses but as de facto ties? What it is is a 500 points percentage, right? So taking one out of every two points available. And you can do that with more losses because you get more losses than wins because you get a point for an OTL. So, yeah, basically just acknowledging that if you're, you know, 20 – I don't know, I'm going to screw up the math here if I do it off the top of my head. But if if you add in losses and OTLs and it's a bigger number than your wins, you can still be NHL 500 because you picked up points in the overtime losses, right? So 82 points in 82 games, that's exactly half of the points available to you. That would be NHL 500. So again, they need 71 and 67. That's basically NHL 500. Dom, I'm running the show my way, buddy. I'm in control here. You're having your little fun... Your little giggle, sending message on the video screen to me. This is my show, buddy. You see Drance here? I'm in control. All right. Brendan Bachelor, voice of the Canucks. He's up next here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People's Show with Bick Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. No Drancer today. He'll be back on the show tomorrow. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, producer Dom has uh, stopped flexing about being the 32 Thoughts producer long enough to get do his job here and get Brendan Batchelor on the line, which I really appreciate. That was nice of you. That was very considerate of you, Dom. Uh, so we do have the voice of the Canucks uh, here on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor on the line. What's going on, Batch? Dom's the 32 Thoughts producer. I've uh, never heard have that you before. have you heard him mention it once or twice? 
No, never in my life at all, ever. <laughs> yeah. By the like, way, this is news to me. Riveting edition of Thirty Two came out this morning. Oh boy! Following the Jay Wood, you got you got a name drop in there this time, Dom, or uh... every time? Oh my gosh! All right, yeah. This uh, is, this I, is I what we have to give deal Dom with. a hard time though, because he does slide my calls into Thirty Two Thoughts every so often, which <laughs> is good for good for the station, good for me, good for all of us. So uh, keep up the good work, Dom. Yeah, you're killing it. You're crushing it, Dom. Uh, anyways, so uh, Canucks. Four out of six points on the road trip and, you know, really zeroing in uh, on that game in Montreal last night. They're coming off the loss in Toronto. I know Montreal is on the second leg of a back-to-back as well, but uh, Talkett said it after the game. He was really impressed with the performance. What did you think about the bounce-back performance in Montreal? Yeah, I I liked it a lot better than the game in Toronto. And, you know, it's sort of hard to read into it and, determine whether it's just the the Leafs have some better players or or, or more opportunistic maybe um, but uh, you know I thought the Canucks game while it certainly wasn't anywhere near close to the best game they've played this season was a more complete effort um, and you know some of their top players that have been a little bit quiet in Toronto I thought had better games and um, you know anytime you're able to score five goals albeit with a couple of empty netters you're you're going to take it and uh, I thought the the key to the win in Montreal was the times in the game where they got the momentum to shift their direction or the goals they got at, at certain times as opposed to Toronto where you know you have a five on three if you score on that two-man advantage you get your third power play goal of the game or you know at the time I think it would have been second power play goal of the game but nonetheless you know if you can if you be more effective on your power play in the game in Toronto then you can sort of kill that game off earlier before the Leafs have a chance to come back into it and I, I didn't really feel like the Canadians ever had a chance to battle back in the game last night once the Canucks got ahead. Uh, one of the the standouts last night was Connor Garland, and and again, it's somebody that Rick Tockett spoke about. Scores the opening goal, gets a big assist on the Dakota Joshua goal later on in the game as well. But you know, I thought in general Garland was really good. That line was really good, and I think over the last week or so, you know, four or five games, the bottom six in general, I think, has been a really big part of what this team is doing. How big a difference uh, what you're seeing from the bottom six now is there between this version and, and what we've seen in years past for the Canucks? Oh, it's night and day. I mean, they actually have a third-line center that they can <laughs> rely on consistently this year, which, uh, you know, if they had consistently played Miller and Pedersen and Horvat down the middle, maybe you could have seen, but Miller was often on the wing. Um, you know, I think Pugh Suter, he's been tremendous in the face-off circle. He's chipped in with some offense here. He does, you know, the right things with and without the puck at both ends of the ice. Um, you know, I think Garland uh, is starting to buy into the role that he has to play to have success down the lineup. And I'm sure that wasn't easy for him. You know, the, the season started off with all the, the trade speculation on him changing agents and, and likely wanting out of Vancouver. And, you know, you were a guy that was playing in the top six in years past, but you've been passed for those sorts of opportunities. But I thought last night's game for Garland was his best game of the season in terms of understanding his role, understanding what he needs to do to be successful and help this team win. And it's funny how when you start doing those sorts of things, offense often follows, and and that's what happened for Garland. So, um, you know, I've liked Suter and Garland. I think Joshua has been a little bit up and down, but the last three or four games or so since he was scratched, he started to look like the, the consistent physical presence that they need. And then, you know, I'm going to be interested to see how the identity of the fourth line develops now that Bluger's back in the lineup. And, you know, I don't want to read too much into his game yesterday because it's his first game of the season after missing a bunch of time. And, 
Uh, he had at least one shift I can remember where he turned the puck over a couple of times. So that's something that you're not going to expect from him over the long term. But I like the potential of him and Lafferty and, you know, it's Beauvillier there right now. Could Hoaglander get back into the lineup at certain points? Yes. You know, if they elect to move any of these guys out via trade or are able to move any of them out via trade, could Neil Zoman factor in coming up from Abbotsford? I think that's certainly a possibility as well. Studnik has been a healthy scratch. He's an option. And it's it's nice to see that, you know, I think in years past when they struggled with their depth, it would be a situation where Studnika would get into the lineup for a game or two, wouldn't play well, and he'd go out. And Hoaglander would get yeah. back into the lineup for a game or two, and then he wouldn't play well, and he'd go out. And it was just sort of a, a rotation of guys that weren't performing to the level that you wanted. It doesn't feel like that right now. It feels like feels like their bottom six actually makes a difference for them, and that's going to be important over the long run because as much as your top guys have been on a heater to start the year, they're not going to continue to produce at this pace, and you're going to need some – depth contributions and depth scoring as well yeah and I I actually think even over the last couple of games you could say that or the last few games that the bottom six I I know the production has still been there from the top forwards and it's not as if they've been playing poorly but I do think the bottom six has really stepped up and you know somebody texted in earlier uh, wondering about Elias Patterson's health right now and it's absurd in some ways because he's leading the league in scoring and we see how productive He's been, but I, I do think you can also notice maybe not quite the level of dominance uh, five on five and in terms of driving play that we've seen from Elias Pettersson in the past. Is this is this kind of are, are we looking for things that aren't there or do you think there is something to the notion that maybe uh, Pettersson's not quite at 100 percent right now? I think there's probably something to it. I, we've heard talk it allude to the fact that, you know, he's dealing with some things, I think, is the way the head coach has characterized it. So. Um, you know, uh, clearly it's not something serious enough to hold him out of the lineup, at least not at this point. But I do think it's pretty clear that he's operating at less than 100%. And the fact that he is still the leading scorer in the league and is still finding a way to contribute on the score sheet on basically a nightly basis while dealing with some sort of ailment, regardless of how, you know, minor or, or major it might be, is incredibly impressive. And you know, you you think about what he could do or or the level he could be playing at. Uh, you know, if if he was at full 100 percent, it's it's kind of scary to think how how dominant a season this could be for a guy like Elias Pettersson. But um, you know, I, I guess we'll find out more in terms of of where his health is at and and where his game trends the rest of this month because it's a very busy month. They've got another three game in four nights set with a back-to-back with travel in the middle coming up this week. So, um, you know, whether we see maybe a a larger dip in his game will be interesting to see. But either way, it's impressive that he's the the league leader in scoring. And I think, you know, again, I don't have any concrete information, but just from watching him play and from hearing sort of some of the things that the head coach has said, it wouldn't surprise me if he's he's operating at less than 100% right now. So as you were saying with the the forward depth and the play of the bottom six right now, I mean, really, it's it's more of a conversation of how do you take a guy out? And that was certainly the conversation before Bluger's return. Like, it's, it's tough to choose who's going to sit. That's how well the depth is playing at forward right now. On the blue line, a little bit of a different story. We saw Noah Juleson come in for Mark Friedman for that game. Who You know, Friedman's ice time had been down significantly over the last couple of games. 
game. So Juleson comes back in to the lineup for the first time in a while. Now there's some uncertainty about Carson Soucy. I know the Canucks put Jack Studnik on waivers today, so maybe there'll be a defenseman coming up from Abbotsford uh, to offer a little bit of uh, of assurance in case Soucy isn't ready for Wednesday. How big of a test is it going to be, not just for you know whichever defensemen end up in the lineup, but for the coaching staff and and the team as a whole to to manage. You know, maybe having two of Friedman and Juleson or two of Friedman and Willannon in the lineup uh, if Susie isn't able to go here. Yeah, I think I would feel more worried about the situation if it was an injury they'd suffered on the right side because it's clear that that's where they lack depth. And, um, you know, if, say, it was, you know, Hironic or Myers that had gone down and suddenly you're talking about playing Friedman and Juleson on two different pairings on a nightly basis, that would concern me. But I'm more confident in the depth they have on the left side. We saw Christy Milanen come up and, um, you know, play some good minutes and play some good hockey for them last season. Uh, Kito Hirose was good in a limited sample size. And, um, you know, I guess it'll all depend on, on the cap implications and, you know, Studnika going down or, or being claimed, I guess, potentially, uh, I would imagine, frees up the room for them to call someone up. So that might just be the, the simple explanation. Um, but, yeah, it, it, you know, as long as it's just one injury and it's on the left side, I think you have the depth there. You have guys that you, you trust that have showed you that they can uh, fill in and, and perform to a high level at the NHL level, then you're, you're not totally concerned about it. Although, I guess it will be interesting to see how they build out their pairings in that scenario. Like, if you're, uh, if you're bringing up a guy like Willannon, are you going to put him with Friedman or Juleson? Mm. Are you going to put him with Myers? Maybe this is where they have to split up Hughes and Hironic just to make sure that they don't have one pairing that can be really underwater. That's going to be fascinating for me to see what the coaching staff does and how they feel they can manage that. Or it could just be a situation where, look, Hughes and Hironic have been playing a ton of minutes. Uh, although probably not as much as they could be playing. I think they're both averaging, what, right around 24 minutes or just below that. And we saw Quinn Hughes play you know, north of 26 minutes a night under Talkett down the stretch last year after the head coach came in. So there is more room, amazingly, to play their top guys more if they want to. And um, if the trust factor isn't there with some of their depth options, especially if Susie's going to miss any sort of time, then uh, that might just mean that you put more on the shoulders of your top guys who have been delivering for you. Do you think, given the the situation, right, with the depth you feel really good about at forward and maybe more questions in terms of depth on the back end, I mean, the team's playing so well right now. I don't know if there's any sense of urgency to go make a move or a trade, but would that be an area you'd target? I think, you know, we've, we've tended to talk about it. Hey, can you go add a top four right shot defenseman? But looking at the situation as it stands, I start to wonder, do you just kind of go shopping for some defensive depth first and foremost, uh, especially if you could move a forward in order to acquire it? Yeah, it's just it seems almost impossible to do right now in the, the flat cap situation. I think if they could have moved off of a Garland or a Beauvillier mm. or someone like that, they would have by now. Um, you know, and, and even if you move off most of that salary, but you don't get a defenseman back in that particular trade, and then you use the cap space to go and, and acquire someone or sign someone, I guess, you know, Ethan Bear continues to be the, the name that's been out there. And uh, it's kind of funny how, you know, you, you talk about, oh, you know, they could sign Ethan Bear, but that's not till December. And now here we are basically yeah. in the middle of November, and that's like two weeks away. So maybe that's what will end up happening is, you know, if they can 
get by for a couple of weeks with a, a patchwork blue line, then you uh, have the opportunity potentially to sign a guy like Bear, and that kind of you know fixes both of those issues where he, you know it, it adds to your depth while also giving you a guy that could potentially play on your top two pairings. But yeah, I, I think absolutely. If I were the Canucks, I would be looking to move a forward out to bring a defenseman in. I just don't know if if the market is there for it right now, and it does make you wonder if you wait a couple more weeks either in terms of signing someone like Bear or in terms of maybe one of these struggling teams like the Oilers or the Flames continue to fall out of it to the point where they might be willing to move off some of their guys by the time you get into, you know, mid to late December. And then, you know, you could be talking about making a move where you bring in someone like Zadorov or Tanev or, or someone like that. Again, you know, you've got to figure out how the, the cap is going to work in, in moves like that because those are guys that – uh, certainly aren't on league minimum deals, but um, but no, I agree completely. I think you know, especially on the right side, and this is probably something that almost any team in the NHL would tell you is that right shot defensemen are are incredibly valuable because of the the lack of them out there. And certainly, the Canucks probably could use two or three more right shot defensemen before I would feel comfortable about their depth from the NHL down to the AHL level as well. Well, and it's wild, too, how quickly things can change in season because it wasn't that long ago, you know, our inbox was overflowing with people saying, hey, you got to get, you got to sit Myers, you got to get him off the team, do whatever, and now you look at it and the way he's playing in particular over the last couple of weeks as you talk about depth, like he's a crucial part of the team's depth right now and especially if Susie isn't able to go and you do have a couple of guys, like Tyler Myers is going to be playing – top four minutes for this team. He's really a piece that they need to have, and it's been a very good thing uh, for the team that he's been able to turn it around and string some good performances together. Yes, although I think injuries on the blue line are another factor that could impact how effective Myers is for you because the role they put him in and the minutes that he's been playing in my opinion are what have allowed him to have success on top of the fact that he sort of simplified his game, played a bit better um, and, and sort of regain the trust of the coaching staff in that regard. But they're playing Myers, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head. I think it's under 18 minutes a game right now, like 17 and a half minutes a game, somewhere like that. Um, you know, historically, he's been one of the, the top four or five guys in terms of minutes on the team. I think he's seventh or eighth right now. Uh, you know, the past couple of years, he's been uh, at the top of the list for penalty kill minutes, shorthanded ice time. He's further down that list. And, you know, I, I think that's a recognition that, you know, maybe he isn't the defenseman that he once was and can't fulfill the role that he once did for this team. So injuries, you know, especially on that right side, if they were to happen, mean that there's an expanded role that he has to play. Now, for the moment, because it's the left side, I'm not concerned about it. It's more about um, do you feel confident that you can get something out of either Friedman or Juleson or on, a, on a night-to-night basis in the short term. And if you can, then you can keep Myers minutes relatively similar to what they've been. And you're not going to have to worry about it too much, but um, you know, that, that is the concern in terms of the depth for me is, you know, in the, the past number of years, the Canucks have struggled defensively. And I think a big part of their defensive struggles has been the fact that guys have been put in roles that are too great for them or that don't give them an opportunity to succeed. And that's what you worry about if the back end does start to get banged up is suddenly you're relying on someone that shouldn't be playing top pairing minutes that has to play top pairing minutes because of the injury situation you're in. And um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that were to happen, if we saw some regression in Myers game 
back to some of the mistakes that we were seeing from him early in the year because if you have to play out the lineup, you're not only playing more minutes, more tired late in the game, but you're playing against, you know, especially at home when you control the matchups, better lines, better opposition, you're being put under more pressure, and that's when those sort of mistakes happen. Hey, Batch, just before we let you go, Casey DeSmith gets both wins on this three-game road trip. And look, Thatcher Temko has been absolutely incredible. Vesna caliber in every sense of it so far this season. But DeSmith has been really good, too. And, you know, as as fantastic as Demko has been and we know how dominant he can be, I think we also understand how incredibly important it is to keep him fresh, to keep him healthy in season and, you know, starting to look ahead to the playoffs as well. How important has the start for Casey DeSmith been to build that trust from the coaching staff that Rick Tockett knows he can go to Casey DeSmith in any situation and still have confidence that his team is going to have a chance to win? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, DeSmith's start has been very good. And the fact that the head coach has, you know, a couple of times put him in situations that he hasn't needed to, and DeSmith has still had success, I think says a lot. It would have been very easy to play Demko two out of the three games on this trip and just give DeSmith the second half of the back-to-back, you know, to to round out the trip. But it's clear that there's a level of trust because of how well he's performed. So that's important. And then the other factor is how well the team has started. Uh, You have that cushion. You're not worried about needing to win every game like we've seen in past years when they've been chasing and behind in the standings and in the sort of situation that the teams like Edmonton and Calgary are in this year. Then the temptation is to run your starter out every night because you need the wins and, and he's the guy that gives you the best chance to win. So, you know, not only does DeSmith playing well improve the confidence that the team and the coaching staff has in him, but then the fact that you've won a bunch of games means you're more comfortable in general about putting a guy like DeSmith in because you're not desperate for the two points on every single night, which, you know, assuming they can maintain at least a, a decent level of play going forward, means that once you get into the back half of the season, where you might be playing the wheels off Demko if you were in a different situation. Now you don't have to. Now you can get DeSmith in more. You can still feel confident that he gives you a good chance to win, and the starts for Demko aren't going to rack up to uh, you know a, an insane number over 60 or something like that. In fact, as, as good as DeSmith has played and as well as he continues to play means that you might even get him in more than you had initially planned and get even more rest for Demko so that he can be fresh down the stretch run and then potentially into the playoffs too. So DeSmith playing well means a lot in terms of the coaching staff's confidence to go to him. And then, you know, the fact that the team has built this cushion for themselves, they're in a good spot means that they can feel even more comfortable going to him, uh, especially when, you know, we get into the second half of the year and, and the points start to matter a whole lot more because the more you bank at the start of the year, the less pressure is on mm. you down the stretch. Uh, Batch, always appreciate this. I, I do want to note, I don't think I uh, planned this very well because I'm, I'm on the morning show tomorrow, and I'm pretty sure you're scheduled on the morning show as oh, well. Oh, well, so. we'll chat again then. I'm going oh, to have to think of some dynamite new questions for you in the next 18 hours or so here. But uh, look forward to chatting with you tomorrow morning. Thanks as always, man. Have a good one. Yeah, are you with Halford tomorrow I am with Halford, yeah. So maybe I'll just okay, tell Halford so he has to ask all the questions. I don't know. That's what I was going to say is normally Bruff asks me all the questions. <laughs> so if it was Bruff, then you could just let him do the interview. Yeah, I don't know if Halford's going to. You're going to have to contribute a little bit probably. Yeah, all right. I'll do my best. <laughs> See you, Batch. Talk to you later. That is Brendan Batchelor, voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. And, yeah, another uh, – oh, I mean, hey, I love chatting with Batch. What's not to like?
great guy, great voice of the Canucks, great insights on the Canucks. So uh, I'll do it again at like 6.30 tomorrow morning or 7 tomorrow morning whenever he's on uh, the morning show with Halford and Bruff. 6.50-6.50 is the Dunbar Lumber text line here. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 6.50. Jamie Dodd here. Uh, no Thomas Drance. He will be back on the show tomorrow. Uh, I was ripping uh, producer Dom earlier, and somebody asked, is this the same Dom from Dom's model? No, completely different. I know it's a lot. There's there's, there's more than one annoying Dom to keep track of right now in the Canucks universe. But this is different. This is producer Dom Shermati. Dom Lucision is from The Athletic. Yeah, that Dom does not speak on behalf of all Doms, Dom. I tweeted out this week. <laughs> The Dom Union is kicking out yeah, Dom Lucision. You heard it here first. Same, okay. So, anyways, this is a different Dom that we're ripping here uh, on the show today. I it's, produce thirty-two. Thoughts. That's right. He is, of course, the thirty-two thoughts uh, producer. Uh, okay, we are going to take a break here. Lots of trade chatter coming in in the inbox, and of course. Uh, Nikita Zadorov, we heard, makes a trade request out of Calgary. We know the Canucks have been interested in him, or at least it's been reported that the Canucks have been interested in him. And I do think the questions about the depth on the blue line make this a really interesting conversation to have right now. Batch brought up the Ethan Bear situation. That's a fascinating part of it. And a lot of it comes down to what do you want from this season? Given what we've already seen from this team, what are your expectations? What should the goals be? That's the question, really, what the front office has to ask, because that's going to dictate their strategy when it comes to adding this to this team. We're going to get into it in the final segment. Hit me up, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Last segment of Canucks Talk coming up here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Live from the Kintech studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Producer Dom playing my least favorite Rejoiner music in revenge for my slander of him. It's the, the one that the isn't low five. It's beats. true. It's not relaxing at all. It's the opposite. I find it uh, unnerving, unsettling. I don't know. Whatever, whatever word you want to use there. You I, don't, I don't care for it. You should try listening to this little thing called rock and roll. I love rock and roll. That's not rock. I'm just saying, if you find that unsettling, like... no, it's it's arrhythmic. I love rock music. Please come on. You know I'm a classic rock guy. <laughs> You've seen how I dress. I actually don't. You've seen how I dress. I don't know what your musical interests are. But I'm saying you could probably make an educated guess. I, I but I would assume, like some some classic rock. I just assume you're a big Nas guy. I I also like I also like a lot of rap. Anyways, uh, six fifty six fifty again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, before I get into some of the trade conversation, I do think it, the Canucks are in a really interesting spot here right now. Shane, the Lego expert, texted this in 
earlier in the show. Who do you think gets invited to the All-Star game from the Canucks and who gets snubbed? Should Canucks fans be upset if we can't get four players there? Pedersen first in scoring, Miller third in scoring, Hughes first in defenseman scoring, Besser first in goals in the Western Conference, second overall, Demko top five in save percentage, et cetera, et cetera. Hronik tied for second in assists, and he says thanks from Shane, the Lego expert. You know, I hadn't started to think about it, and obviously the selection process is still a long ways away, and a, a lot of different things can happen. But it is absurd how many legitimate all-star team candidates the Canucks have going right now. I mean, really, you could make the case for, what, six? The six guys he lays out there, Patterson, Miller, Hughes, Besser, Hronik, Demko. Obviously, they can't all make it. <laughs> That's more than half of the team or half the team, whatever the number is that, the, that each division sends uh, at this point. And that's not going to be the case. It's not going to be half Vancouver Canucks on the Pacific Division uh, all-star team. I think the absolute no doubt is Hughes with what he's doing as a defenseman, leading defenseman scoring, his impact on the game, the role he plays, all of that I think is undeniable. Pedersen will see where his game develops, but if he's first in the NHL in scoring or even, you know, top three in the NHL in scoring when the selection process rolls rolls around, I don't see how you keep that out of the All-Star game. So Hughes and Pedersen, I would say the front runners. Everything after that, you know, if, if, if you want to be the third or fourth guy from a team, I think it becomes even more difficult. Miller, just because his contributions tend to be more two-way as much as he's also racking up points right now. But I think it's easier to exclude someone from the All-Star game if they're more of a two-way complete player. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that tends to be how it goes with the All-Star game, right? Points are the things that it's going that's going to get you invited more than – uh, you know, being a really responsible 200-foot player, even if that impacts winning more. You know, Besser, if the goal scoring is there, and again, if he's top five in the NHL in goals, I think that's the kind of thing that's really hard to deny as well. But yeah, Shane the Lego expert brings up a good point. Um, it's going to be some very, very difficult decision if some of the Canucks players can keep this going. And people are just like, oh, who cares about the All-Star game? I'm not saying they're going to be outraged. The players are going to be outraged if they don't get selected. Yeah, of course. They like getting a little bit of time off as well. Uh, but it's just remarkable how many legitimate candidates, legitimate candidates that the Canucks have right now. And part of that, of course, is the team is playing really, really well. We can see that in the standings. We can see it through all the individual performances. We can sense it from the way the players are talking about the team, the way the coach is talking about the team. Everything is going very, very well. You don't need me to tell you that. You know that. You watch the games and you can see that with the Vancouver Canucks right now. And that puts Jim Rutherford and the Canucks front office, I think, in a really, really fascinating position. They've made a lot of moves. They've done a lot of work on this team. And you think everything from the Bo Horvat trade, the Philip Hronick deal, to extending JT Miller, the flurry of little moves before the season, bringing in, you know, signing Pew Suter, Casey DeSmith coming in in a trade, Sam Lafferty coming in. In a trade, they've been very active on this roster. But Jim Rutherford even said, you know, before the season, hey, maybe we have one or two more contracts that we'd like to move out before we real really feel like we've completed the process of turning things over and creating the cap space and the room and the flexibility that we want to have. The interesting thing now about the team playing so well is it does a couple of different things from the perspective of the front office and the moves they might be looking to make or that I would be looking to make potentially 
in their shoes. I mean, number one, first and foremost is obvious. There's no sense of desperation right now, right? There's no pressure to go out and make a move. There's been so many times over the last couple of years where it felt like the team needed to do something almost just for the sake of doing something, right? Like, hey, you've got all these bad contracts. Just go flip one, change the mix, shuffle the deck, do whatever, just change something because things aren't going well. And first and foremost, what the Canucks have done with their play on the ice, with the results they've achieved so far, they've taken that consideration away. That, that doesn't exist anymore, and that's a very good thing. There's no pressure to go out and make a move simply for the sake of doing something, right? Oh, bad money for bad money swap, just to see if it how it changes things. You don't have to do that. You have no desperation, no pressure. But I do think the other thing that's happened as a result of this is you have to start considering maybe some higher stakes moves because I think the upside of potential moves now, the upside of potential trades and acquisitions when you're a good team becomes a lot higher. This isn't just about trying to shake things up, seeing if you can you know throw something in the wall and, and see if it sticks now. Now it's about trying to take a good team and make them a legitimate contender. Like, that's how I would look at the task in season. If you think that this team's true talent level is anything close to what they've shown so far and the results they've accrued so far, then I think it absolutely has to be a legitimate consideration. All right, how do we strengthen this team for a playoff run? And that's what I was alluding to before the break, right? What do you want out of this season? What should the goal be from this point on? We heard Jim Rutherford before the season, hey, if everything goes right, we're a playoff team. And we talked about it in the context of, you know, the Elias Patterson negotiations. Can this team make the playoffs? Can they take step, that step forward and make the playoffs? And if you're content with that, if that's the goal still, just make the playoffs, reward the fans with a playoff appearance, then, yeah, obviously there's no urgency to go out and add to the team. This team is in an extraordinarily strong position to make the playoffs. I don't think you need to tinker. I don't think you need to do much of anything to make sure that they get in. But I still look at it, and just the volume of things that are going right for this team, and not all of them are going to last all year. That's just not how it goes. No team has everything go perfectly from game one to game 82 and beyond. But you look at some of the things that are happening that you think have a pretty good chance of sticking around. I would start with Quinn Hughes and his performance being, you know, one of the two or three best defensemen, if not the best defenseman in the NHL right now. Elias Patterson and his production. And if he, if he ever is absolutely fully 100% healthy, what he can do as a two-way player. The fact that JT Miller is having such a strong start playing down the middle. And maybe the production won't be there for Miller and Besser and PDG in the same way that it has been to start the season. But if the res- if the process is there, the underlying process is there, then you've got another very good line. To me, I look at it and there's enough things that feel sustainable, feel reliable going right this season that I do think you can make a strong argument to lean into it, right? If everything is hitting for you, if everything is clicking, why be satisfied with a first round or a second round exit even in the playoffs? Why not aim higher and really try to take a swing? You know, I know the phrase is always go all in. Maybe that's not quite accurate. But push some chips into the middle at least. Try to make the most out of the opportunity that's presenting itself 
for the Canucks right now. And the great thing about Jim Rutherford, having Jim Rutherford as the president of hockey operations, is he's not afraid. He is absolutely not afraid to step up and take a swing. And if he sees enough from this team, if he sees enough from this team to think that they've justified taking that swing at some point, yeah, you better believe he's going to go out there and try to hit the, hit one into the stands, right? That's what Jim Rutherford does. Now, I have been of the opinion that you wait until January. And that's for a bunch of different reasons, right? That's gather more information about the team, see what is sticking, see how you're positioned in the Western Conference. Do you have a legitimate shot at having home ice in the first round, right? Seeing all of these things about where you sit relative to the other teams, do you think you can legitimately be a contender this year? Gather some more information. It's also way easier to make deals once the calendar flips over. Teams have accrued a little bit of cap space. It's more clear who is going to be an also-ran in the playoff race, who might be willing to be a seller. That becomes a lot more obvious. It's just way easier to make those moves. And I still think for the, the big needle-moving trade or the big splash trade, that's probably where you're looking. You're looking in January and February leading into the trade deadline. Okay, who comes available? Is there a guy out there that we can go grab and who can really increase our our chances at not just making the playoffs but doing some damage in the playoffs this year? But I do think, you know, as much as I still think, okay, that's maybe a January and a February discussion, you're laying the groundwork now. You're seeing what's out there. You're doing your due diligence If something falls into your lap, then sure, go ahead and take it. But realistically, we're talking a couple months down the road. As much as that's true, you know, I look at the Susie leaving the game on Sunday, and we don't know. We don't have an update on his status. He could be back in the lineup on Wednesday. But as I talked about with Batch, it does kind of highlight the concerns at the depth level on the blue line right now that don't really exist at the forward level. At the forward level, look, obviously, if Elias Pettersson or JT Miller is injured, that's a massive blow. And very few teams are well set up to deal with a blow uh, to their two, to either of their two best forwards like that. But you look farther down the roster, and yeah, you have 13 forwards right now that you feel really good about putting in the game. Niels Hoaglander, I think, has played excellently, and he came out of the game. And, you know, it's hard to have too much disagreement with that move since Teddy Bluger needed to come back in. But you look at the 12 forwards who played against Montreal, plus Niels Hoaglander, that's 13 forwards that you feel really, really strongly about having in the lineup right now at this moment. And you just don't have that same calm. And then plus you get into, you know, Jack Stadnika, who is totally fine, I think, as an NHL player. Niels Amon has played really well down in Abbotsford. Arshdeep Baines, we know, has played really, really well. You have credible options. Hey, Vasily Pud Colson gets back on the ice and get some success in Abbotsford. He could be an option. You have legitimate options that you can feel very comfortable with all up and down your NHL roster and at the Abbotsford level. That same depth and that same confidence that just doesn't exist at the blue line. And when that's the case, I think you start to wonder, okay, maybe it's not for the you know the top four right-shot defensemen to pair with Ian Cole or something like that. It's not the big splash, but are there little things we can do? Is there something smaller, maybe, you know, not bigger than the Mark Friedman deal, but not a true big splash. Is there something like that we can do to shore up our defensive depth a little bit at this point in the season? Now, I do think a huge part of this conversation is Ethan Bear. And again, as Batch alluded to, you know, hey, all of a sudden December, 
when we've heard maybe that's when he's going to start to sign. You know, could he be ready to go by mid-December, January, something like that? That's all of a sudden, that's not very far away. And Ethan Bear, I mean, he if you can sign him and he's healthy and he's good to go and you feel good about him contributing, he is an excellent, excellent fit for this team. As a top four right shot defenseman to pair with Ian Cole, you know, you, you can move him up to play with Quinn Hughes if you want to split up Hughes and Hronik. He gives you a ton of different options. He fits what this team needs. That could significantly change the picture. And look, I don't know. I know I know there's been interest, as Rick Dahlioul has reported. I can't tell you if they're the front runners. I can't tell you what their chances are. But you have to acknowledge that that would change the picture considerably if they are able to sign Ethan Bear. But until we have certainty on that, I do wonder if it makes sense to go out try to move it forward uh, in a smaller deal. Maybe you're able to create some cap space at the same time uh, and go out and add some depth to the blue line. This one comes in. Uh, Beauvillier should sit. And somebody else says Hoaglander should be there in the lineup instead of uh, Beauvillier. And I know we've had people um, we've had people texting in, you know, hey, Beauvillier is the weak link on this lineup. He's the guy who's got to go. I agree he's the biggest candidate. He's the most obvious candidate for a trade because of his salary and where he's playing in the lineup. I don't think it's fair to say he's been a weak link for this team. I actually think he's played pretty well. And I think one of the hallmarks of a good team is having a player like Anthony Beauvillier, who objectively is qualified for more than a fourth-line role playing on your fourth line. Like, that's a good thing, fundamentally. Having guys who could credibly be up farther up in the lineup, playing farther down, your lineup. But that's the opposite of where the Canucks have found themselves so often in the last couple of years. It's just if you want to go out and make an addition, if you even want to have the cap space to sign Ethan Bear, something's got to give. And Beauvillier is the obvious guy, especially with the way Garland has that third line working right now. Garland's work rate, you know, the way the way he's able to contribute, I just think it's uh it's a meaning at a meaningfully higher level than Beauvillier. So if you're looking to do this, okay, clear some cap space, move it forward, go get a defenseman. I do think Beauvillier is the obvious candidate for that. Uh, this guy texts in, uh, dude, no team misses the playoffs three years in a row and then just wins the cup. It takes time and many losses. I don't know. But, like, you can point back and say, oh, well, teams, all, there always has to be this, uh, you know, this losing process first. But, yeah, younger teams have won the cup. It has happened. Why not lean into it? If you if 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 this is real, if you don't think it's a mirage right now, if the team has guys playing at, you know, having career years, playing at the absolute height of their power. And I'm not saying right now as they're constituted that they're a serious cup contender, but is there a move you can make? Is there something you can do? Is there a splash you can make? A, a card you can play? Yeah, it, may, it might involve giving up a future. It might involve some painful decisions, but those might be the decisions you have to make to turn yourself in to a realistic cup contender. I get what the texter is saying, and I still think the ideal way to build a team is to give yourself you know, a five-plus-year window where you figure to be really, really good for all five of those years, and you're going to have a bunch of kicks at the can. But that might not be where the Canucks are. The Canucks might be a team that need to go all in, all in on this season. Uh, Dan and Poco text in, since Myers is expiring and likely not back next year, 
sign Bear and trade Myers and a modest sweetener to Calgary for Chris Tanev. Look, if Chris Tanev is on the market, and there's every reason to believe that he will be at some point, given how the season has gone for Calgary, like Tyler Myers, as much as he has been good for the Canucks in recent weeks here and playing in that third-line role, I think he can help teams. Still, with his contract, he's not really an asset. That contract still has negative value if the Canucks aren't retaining you know, 50% of it. So I think it's going to take a lot more than Myers and a modest sweetener the Canucks aren't going to be the only team that are in, that's interested in Chris Tanev. That's a veteran, right-shot defenseman with an extremely good reputation around the league. I agree he could be a fantastic fit, and maybe you do need to move Tyler Myers to make it happen, although I'd prefer to have both of them in the lineup because I think if you move Myers to bring in Tanev, then you're left with you know Friedman or Juleson on your third pair, and you're not really addressing some of these depth concerns, right? I think the ideal would be bring in Chris Tanev, and then you have Mark Friedman or Noah Juleson as your 7th or 8th defensemen rather than guys on your bottom pairing. But I think it's going to take more. I think it's going to take more than Tyler Myers and Amada Sweetener. In fact, I know it's going to take more than Tyler Myers and Amada Sweetener. And, you know, I should tie this back into the Nikita uh, Zadorov trade request. Another Calgary defender, left shot. Now, this is an interesting one because he's cheaper than Chris Tanev. He's younger than Chris Tanev. He's only on a $3.75 million cap hit. Younger than Chris Tanev, but he is a pending UFA. And we have heard that the Canucks have been interested in Nikita Zadorov for a while, whether it's as a UFA at the end of the season, whether it's as a potential trade acquisition in season, we don't know. The Zadorov one is fascinating for me because you can tell why teams would be really, really interested in him. You know, he's, he's a, a big physical defenseman. But he doesn't hurt you defensively, right? Like, sometimes these big physical guys, it's like, well, they can't really play. So, yeah, they can throw a body check, but you're going to spend a lot of time hemmed in your own zone. Zadorov's not that. He's a good defenseman who also brings that bite and that meanness to him. And I completely understand why teams are interested. My question is, you know, as we talk through all the different permutations and things that would have to happen for the Canucks to go out and add on the blue line, right? And it's creating cap space, and it's throwing in futures, and it's making some tough decisions – does Nikita Zadorov as a left-shot defenseman, right, when this team is already short on right-shot guys, does he move the needle enough to justify you kind of jumping the market and going in and making your move now? Because if you go out and get Zadorov and you open up the cap space to do that, whether it's moving Beauvillier, whether it's doing something else, and you give up enough of a future to win the bidding because other teams are interested, you give up enough futures to win the bidding – do you have the capability, the flexibility left to go make a mother, another move down the road? That's my question. I'm not sure the answer is yes. I think if the Canucks were short of lefties on the blue line, then, hey, go for it. Make that splash. But because we've seen how committed Rick Tockett and Adam Foote are to playing guys on their natural side, right? He's been so reluctant to move Carson Soucy or Ian Cole over to the right side. And, look, they've gotten results so far, so it's hard to argue with that. Bringing in another left shot guy, having that be one of your big moves, it makes me a little nervous. Not saying, not saying it would be a disaster. Not saying it would be a disaster, but I'm just saying, I don't know. I, I'd like to wait and see what comes available on the market later in the year. Uh, Ian in Coquitlam says, I don't think you can go all in on the Canucks just yet. They have looked real good. However, 
They've played a lot of so-so type teams so far. I need to see how they look against Vegas, Colorado, and L.A. before I'm all in on this group. And I understand that. I think that's a completely fair perspective to take, right? That you're not ready to really push your chips into the middle yet on this team. But I do think we need to be... At the very least, there's a possibility now that the smartest move is to push your chips in at some point. Maybe we're not there yet. Maybe you do still need to see more. And again, that's why I'm advocating for more, okay, let's revisit this in January. But I do think we have to acknowledge the possibility that if this team is as good as it looks right now, then it's not outlandish. It's not unnecessarily risky. It's actually smart to go out and try to add something, to go out and add a key player who can raise their ceiling even more than what we've seen, right? Yeah. In the past, I've said, hey, let's try to be patient about this. But if you're getting career years out of Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, JT Miller, Brock Besser, go down the list, Philip Ronick, Thatcher Demko, if you're getting career players out of your, like, six best players all at the same time, you got to lean into it at a certain point. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But that does become... That does become a legitimate conversation at some point. There's a door of one, maybe forcing it a little bit earlier. I don't think he's the guy you go out and cash your chips in for. I don't think he's the guy you use one of your limited swings on. But he's out there, and it's at least worth the conversation right now. Someone else says, why not both? Tana Venzadorov. What would it take? It would take a lot. Both interesting fits. Very interesting fits. I love the idea of adding two defensemen. What you have to do around the roster on the fringes there, that's difficult. That's hard to figure out. I love the ambition, though. That's what I'm talking about. Have some ambition. Try to push. Try to see where this team can go. Enjoy it. I thought it was 55. Is it 54-30? All right. Well, Dom's telling me to go to break. Uh, thanks for listening. Drance will be back tomorrow. I won't, though. I'm on the morning show. So uh, tune in for me and Halford on the morning show. Keep it right here on Sportsnet 650.